Hello and welcome to the Changing Mentality podcast. This is George and this is a podcast devoted to exploring issues around masculinity, mental health and the well-being of male students at university. It's created by a group of male students from across the UK and supported by the charity Student Minds and Comic Relief. In this episode I talked to Robert Brown, who is a PhD student in philosophy at St Andrews, about the effect that social class has on one's experience of university. In particular, we talk about the impact it has on students from low-income and or working-class backgrounds. And as Robert explains, while those two certainly overlap in many ways, they are subtly distinct. If you're from one of these backgrounds and you feel like it's presenting certain challenges for you while being at university, I'd recommend you look to see if your student union has a working-class officer. While this is not something that every university in the UK has, Many student unions have them now. Robert and I also discuss how being from one of these backgrounds can have a negative impact on your mental health. If you are struggling with depression or anxiety, I'd recommend you check out the Students Against Depression website. While it does focus on depression, there's also resources for insomnia, anxiety and other issues you might be experiencing related to negative mental health. So with that said, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I really enjoyed getting Robert's perspective, especially as he's someone who both is from a low-income and working-class background. And thank you for listening. Judge. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, no worries. Thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, the experience of students from working class backgrounds at university. So maybe a good place to start is just uh, tell us a little bit about your own background, your own experience for university and um, how you became interested in these kind of topics around social class. Yeah, so I'm currently a first year PhD student in philosophy at the University of St Andrews. Um, I work primarily in uh, philosophy of mind and consciousness. Um, so I, I grew up in Darlington in the northeast of England, and that's where I went to school in sixth form and I came from a low income background. Um, and my parents met when they were working in a factory, um, my dad on the forklift. Um, and then when I got a little older, my mum started working part-time cleaning for the NHS. When we were sort of arranging the episode, one thing you mentioned uh, was a kind of reluctance to talk publicly about this kind of topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the imposter syndrome is real. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, I think, it, I think imposter syndrome is, is something in academia it's talked a lot about, especially, I guess you would say privately, um, you know, I, I, the number of, of PhD students and academics that I know that um, <laughs> will say that they, that, you know, they, they definitely have imposter syndrome. Um, and obviously these sort of things are getting better. Um, but yeah, I, uh, so you contacted me after I uh, ran a, a St Andrews Minority and Philosophy workshop with another PhD student. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, I was hesitant to, I mean, I was hesitant to do that that workshop because 
um, I didn't want to be, you know, a fox person, you know, and, and, and like, to be clear, while I am from, uh, I'm his only grandson and, um, they got very lucky in the housing market back in, back in the day, you know, um, (laughs) uh, you know, and the, the PhD loan, you know, had some shortfall. So, um, you know, so like he, he helped me eat basically. Um, so I, you know, I don't ever because of that. I don't really ever want to be a, a, a spokesperson because there's there's people that have that have struggled and and do struggle a lot more than I do. Um, so like for example, I've never had to work during my studies um, mm. until like now. Um, but like I don't actually have to heavily rely on the on the, the income that I get from tutoring. Um, and when my parents were struggling, um, most of that was when I was very young. Um, so while I remember what it was like only being a child, you never really have the full story, Yeah. you know, um, even when you're like 12, you still, um, you still don't really have the entire story. Um, but I do know that my drive to university has always been based on a like desire not to struggle like my parents did. Um, uh, the more qualified to speak than I am, but saying that these are issues that, and it's something that needs to be talked about more. Um, so I thought, well, you know, if I'm if I have a, a platform to do it, then I probably should. Yeah, yeah. I think that feeling of imposter syndrome can be quite common, and especially the feeling of not wanting to be a spokesman. And I think we can one thing that can be helpful to say is like. Um, you know inevitably you're going to be talking from your own experience and that's not going to be everyone's experience Um, and there are going to be people who uh, I think hearing just individuals stories even if you don't see them as representative they can still tell you about something it's still someone's experience Um, there was actually a quote I wanted to read that came up I read um, Owen Jones's book Chavs the demonization of the working class he had this quote where he says, what could be described as the working class has never been homogenous. It includes people for whom life, people for whom life is okay, but could be so much better, and who face rising insecurity and fears about the I wanted to read that quote just as a way of capturing the fact that when we talk about, um, say, being from a working class background, and we'll come more into like what we mean by class and that kind of thing. But when we talk about these things, we are talking about a wide sector of people and but and at the same time, there, there will be patterns or there will be things that are common that are also important to emphasize. So I, I feel like it's probably just good to say that up front. Mm. Mm, definitely, definitely, yeah. Yeah, um, classes are really interesting. And so yeah, yeah, it'll be it'll, uh, good to get to that. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing I would add as well is, I think that kind of from many different angles and so like I'm having this conversation as someone from much more of a middle class background who hasn't faced financial struggles at any point and there's imposter syndrome with that because it's like oh well I don't want to speak for people when it's not my experience and I don't want to get it wrong as a result of not being from the background that um, is being talked about but then there's also the thing of well I don't want to just not talk about an issue that I think is important because then I'm playing into the thing of middle class people getting uncomfortable about class and just pretending it doesn't exist and we're all middle class now and it so it can be these things can be a bit of a double bind but I feel like it's in a way it's keep it as kind of informed as possible 
given the fact that we're all, you know, no, no one knows everything. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I think often the, the figures speak for themselves as well. You know, I guess maybe mm. that's why I started with them. So I guess, yeah, one place to start is when you think about class, what kind of things do you think constitutes it? Oh, I mean, it's, it's very complicated. It's <laughs> so really complicated. To start with a difficult question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's really complicated. Yeah, um, I, think, I think it needs to be removed from the idea of, of money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you, you definitely need to make a distinction between like working class and, and low income. Um, because to be working class seems far more like a, a cultural definition, you know, based on accent, region, upbringing. Um, low income is a financial definition. Um, and obviously, these things very frequently go hand in hand. Um, yeah. You know, but I, I think it's, it's important to remember, um, at least for me, that if anything was going to stop me from going to university to do my undergraduate degree, um, the, the, the same can be said for postgrad, but I guess it can come to that later. Um, yeah. But like the, the English loan system, at least how it was when I was at York. So like from my experiences at University of York, the English loan system was fairly generous for, for people from a low income background. Um, I didn't have any family money at undergrad and I didn't struggle at all. You know, I, I, I existed fairly comfortably. It was the first time that I did. Like, nevertheless, there's still things about university that that you don't know um when you're from a background where you are the yeah yeah i think that's right i mean so one distinction that might be good to introduce here is this these distinctions people make between different kinds of capital so people talk in the sort of sociology of this people talk about so economic capital is like uh, your financial assets that's how much money you have in the bank plus if you have a business if you have property just all the various ways that people can accumulate wealth for themselves and their families and then social capital is who you know um whether you have friends in high places i, I sometimes think about it as though you know one way to tell how much social capital you have is to ask yourself well if I'm in the music industry or any of these really competitive or academia like any of these really competitive industries if I said that to my parents, would they look at me blankly or would they say, oh, well, of course, you can talk to our friend there and our friend. Um, yeah, we, like we know this academic and we know um, so and so is a journalist. And, you know, if they have a list of contacts, that means you're probably someone who has. Then finally, cultural capital is like what you know, um, the kind of cultural activity. I almost think of it as like the kind of references you're likely to get when people are talking. So-called high-minded things like literature and philosophy mm-hmm. you probably count as well and art and that kind of thing mm. um and i suppose just as an, a more general background i don't think we're going to go into this here but uh sociologists have now argued that there are there's a lot of different categories and i think for the purpose of this conversation mm. we'll just talk in terms of capital rather than that. but i just wanted to mm. flag that as a way of there are a variety of different classes and the ways that they diverge and intersect are to do with uh, possessing mm. So with all of that said, I thought the best way to talk about um, class, especially as it regards it relates to university, would be how we see these different kinds of capital and especially being low. So you've talked about how money isn't 
necessarily often not the problem when it comes to coming to university at least at undergrad because of the mm. student loan system in terms of cultural capital what difference do you think i think there's a lot of what you would call intrinsic knowledge mm. um associated with with universities so um something that my attention was drawn to fairly recently with um the term office hour now i realize i've been seeped in uh, uh academia for a while now um so yeah. it, it never really occurred to me um the mm-hmm. i was talking to someone fairly recently um uh, now a, an academic uh, and they said that they were the first in their family to go to university and, and they didn't they when they heard office hour they thought that that was a time when academics wouldn't be available right okay they're in their office they're working in their oh, office yeah right and and it's so obvious right you know <laughs> like of course that's what someone would you know there's other like in in academia you know there's a general expect uh, if you need help you're after so i'm a tutor right now um and i i do try to reach out to my students and remind them if they need help they should just ask but you know for for some they might not realize and there's a general expectation on the like from academics at least that that you know if you're not hearing anything from your students then then and you know and you can't blame academics if academics are overworked and underpaid i'm not counting myself among that um i'm a postgraduate tutor that generally overworked and underpaid um yeah, but no, you know you, you can't necessarily blame the academics it's just the culture i i guess the, the problem is that the the, the culture of academia isn't something that's going to pen- penetrate into a sphere of someone that's, uh, you know, I mean, I was fortunate, the mantra that, that we grew up with, with their shy bands getting out. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I'm, fa- I'm fairly willing to, you know, speak up. Um, but obviously not everyone's going to grow up. There's lots of little things like that, that individually, and huge yeah. but, and when you don't have someone that's been through the system before to tell you you know to to tell you about certain things to warn you about certain things or even just thing things like farm filling that goes on at universe people might wonder you know so many farms i have to fill in is does this meaning that i'm not going to get my place or or is there something wrong with my application okay, you know, yeah. no 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 you know, um, word, I'd never heard the word matriculation before until uh, I, I did it at university. You know, it's just lots of, it's lots, you know, really only enter into, enter into a conversation once you, once you, once you're from an academic perspective. And if you don't have anyone telling you, you know, oh yeah, this is usual, or this is fine, or warning you before, then there is going to be a sense, a sense of alienation. Yeah, I think there's like maybe two components there as well because there's the, the the not knowing um, that you're you're going to a large extent you're going to be left to your own devices at university. There's an understanding that if you need help, you can seek it and it's there. That's you know it's understood by the sort of academic environment itself, or the, um, and it's probably better understood by people from middle class backgrounds. But if you don't, as you're saying, if you don't have that, if you've not been, if no one in your family has been to university. Um, you may just assume that if you're struggling, it really is down to you to just get on with it. And that, and I, I can easily see how that would contribute to this feeling of like, well, I shouldn't be here because look, I'm struggling. 
am I? Because no one said, you know, no one's no one's sort of gone out of their way to try and help me. But then I can also imagine there's an element of, you know, one thing that came up when I was researching this is a lot of fear that students from working class backgrounds have of being on this imposter syndrome of like of being unmasked as someone who doesn't belong there which yeah. then makes them reluctant to ask for help because they have this fear of betraying the fact that like oh well if I'm struggling that must be yet another sign that this isn't for me and I, sh I shouldn't be here rather than and then of course you know like so many lots of students regardless of their background can struggle but if you seek help then you can get confirmation of like oh that's fine that's normal don't worry about it but if you don't yeah and even if even if you are the sort of person that can that can see can take time yeah. you know so for example if you um and when i say time i mean you know if if you're if you're very anxious about something and you know let's say you let's say you you email student services about it um it could be that um if you have a family member that's that's been to university or like our friend that's been to university um you could just text them or call them and they could give you the answer much quicker um so there could be periods of like you know 24 hours of feeling very anxious about something waiting for student services to respond or 48 hours 72 whatever um where um if you have the insider knowledge already if you you know if you have access to that intrinsic knowledge from another source you might be able to get that answer quicker um, and obviously these are very you know very uh, hypothetical examples that are quite abstract um but you know that they're, they're obviously happening a lot yeah um yeah i think i know i i know i say um quite a bit that that, that money isn't necessarily everything um but uh I would like to draw attention to to um to something the amount of uh, money that Scottish students get for um maintenance that's how much you get to live off is lower um the last time I, I checked uh so obviously your your parents might not have any savings to draw upon you know you might not have any savings to draw upon I mean my parents I saw a um a on one of these uh, anonymous student forums uh, that are that are on that are on Facebook, um, student it was a student had posted this seeming fairly anxious. All of their friends were buying a, a house together for you know like they were clearly second year undergraduate first year undergraduate students about to buy a house together for next year, and they were saying, you know, is this is this normal? Is this like oh. a thing that I should be doing? Oh my god! Um, and I thought, God, you know, and they obviously people were posting in the comments. And, and St Andrews has an, has an image of you know being like being very expensive um, and being somewhere far you know for only uh, for only the elites um, and I have some some projects in mind that to do it to try and help deal with that image while financial um, barriers aren't always a, a problem there are and I guess this comes with the intrinsic knowledge as well there's other costs of university that that you might not know to factor in you know when you're budgeting you know if yeah, you're budgeting yeah. for a year you might not know to factor in like you know um uh, it, it, it york societies cost money when i was there to, to become members of it five pounds or so um but they still cost um you know the 
um, you might not know exactly, uh, you might not know about any cost of, of textbooks. That you know. And this is all a part of this intrinsic knowledge. So even if, you know, you, you would have purchased various things, um, you just might not know to budget for it until you get there. Yeah. And, and, and you wouldn't know that. And that you may well know these sorts of things if, if you weren't the first in your family to go to university. Again, like it's the issue of knowledge and money are kind of compounded because if you come from a, a family where people, I mean, you might come from a low income background, but you're probably less likely to. So on the one hand, you probably will know these things. But at the same time, if you don't know them, your, you know, your budgeting is not going to be need to be nearly as stringent if you're coming from a much wealthier background as the budgeting of someone who is from a low income background. So there's an element of, it, you know, you're either going to know it or if you don't know it, you'll be fine. Like you're, if you need a bit of extra money if, and you've got a family that can provide it, that if you don't have the money to spend on, you then often have to sacrifice time in the place. Yeah, every university that you've come across is going to have some sort of thing like this where and in, and you know not just universities you know that, that's just expanded completely everything in life yeah you know basically trade your time for money yeah you know, if you can afford to just you know buy the very first trend then that just takes you less time than having to sit down for an hour or two and you know scroll through uh do very things in order to buy cheaper train tickets same goes for things like electricity or any sort of bill um any anything where it's just where it's quicker to buy the more expensive thing um means that uh, if you want it cheaper then okay you're not spending you're not spending money but then you're spending time yeah um, and that time you could be used to do something else you know not necessarily working but you know it could be just relaxing you know everyone needs downtime um, you know, and if you've if you've worked all day, and then you come home, and now, you know, all you want to do is just like sit and chill for an hour before you go to bed. Mm. Uh, but actually, knowing this hour, what you've got to do is is go online and start, you know, hunting for cheaper whatever. Um, then again, that's another trade off um, that 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 low income people are having to make. Yeah, and it's also it's like the time is that the way that time is being spent is both tedious and stressful it's not a creative mm. thing to do it's not a particularly interesting thing to have to do it's just a necessity it's one more necessity and it's yeah as you say it's time you could be spending taking care of yourself looking after your own well-being doing things one problem that, that maybe isn't touched on enough is just self-selection if i don't you know if 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 I don't feel like, um, sorry, I'm speaking third person here. If I don't feel like I'm uh, going to fit in somewhere, then I'm far less likely to go to that place. Mm -hmm. um, so if you were looking through a university's website, um, and I'm sure this applies to other universities as well, and you come across some sort of tradition um, that you don't understand, and then it seems like it's an integral part of like university culture, then maybe you would go, oh, well, maybe this place isn't for me. And it's the, and it's the maybe this place isn't for me is a huge problem. 
and that obviously you know that isn't just a problem for people from you know that are first in their family to go to university from working class or low income backgrounds it's a problem for all sorts of minority groups mm. you know um uh where you where you um feel as though a place isn't for you and therefore don't even bother applying in the first place yeah yeah i think that's an important point as well it's that it's not just a matter of um the people who go there and how they end up feeling which might they might feel a bit um excluded or a little bit alienated but also all the people who why why could you have come here but chose not to apply or why did you expect that you wouldn't be able to come here or you wouldn't fit in? Student, satis student satisfaction at St Andrews according to the NFS survey is incredibly high. Okay. St Andrews is incredibly well on student satisfaction. Um, yeah. You know but as, as you say you know um, uh, how many people are self-selecting out? We, yeah. We'll know. yeah. Yeah. I suppose with the cultural capital thing, I guess there's the way the organisation... Do you think there's also an element of just certain kinds of cultural knowledge? Like, I mean, I mentioned this idea of, like, getting references that people make. I'm mean, just one thing that I've encountered at universities. People just allude to a load of, like, a huge... I've been studying philosophy since I was an undergrad, and people make references to philosophers, but also to kind of great works of literature. Sometimes they're using those examples in, there's a lot of that kind of thing. And, you know, occasionally I'd notice like, oh, should I know who they're referring to? Should I have gone and read that book? Is that something I'm already meant? And I can only imagine that's intensified for someone who, because of their social class or their social background already might feel like they don't belong or that there's, you know, that, that imposter syndrome is only going to get amplified if they're getting those kinds of, feelings or messages when they're in the seminar definitely and i think i can can work both ways um mm. but i think there's definitely more there's more stories of people that that don't know the sorts of things like what you were saying um feeling as though they they ought to um mm. i know it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a common trope for you know like uh first year undergraduate philosophy students to refer to obscure bits of philosophy in <laughs> seminars um you know uh and then people people think oh god do i do i need to know this and the answer is no you know i mean I, you know i mean okay so so first year philosophy student refers to hegel um yeah i don't know anything about hegel you know i mean yeah they've absolutely uh, not read hegel for the record but that's not but it's very it's very easy when you are um when you find yourself immersed in like a, a new sort of culture to um, and you you do change um, when you you know and after I gave the um, minorities in philosophy workshop um, I was speaking to some people afterwards after you spend some time at university your your interests start to differ from those at home mm -hmm. um, and and the sorts of things that you and it's a it's a it's a strange thing because um, my as in like when i'm when i'm with my parents back in darlington the sorts of things pre-pandemic that we would do um you know for fun or the sorts of parties that we would go to um you know even the sorts of like food we would eat 
you know, the places that we would go out to eat were were quite different to um, what I would be doing at university. Um, and it's not that it's not that like one of them is 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 better or worse. Um, for the record, I actually kind of prefer the parties that we have at home. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but it's just that they're different. Generally, things like well, that's interesting because I've never noticed a difference. Right. Yeah. You know that there isn't any difference between my life and, and knowing that. Uh, so it is just a strange thing knowing being in a university environment has changed you. Um, I'm not going to make a value judgment as to how it's changed you, um, but that it has, um, and quite disconnected. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's come up when I've been reading about this, these sorts of issues, there's actually a really good book called Limbo, uh, Blue Collar Roots, White Collar Dreams, I think it's the title. And it's about people from working class backgrounds trying to go into middle class professions. And a lot of it talks about the university experience and how you're being stuck between two different worlds and not necessarily feeling entirely comfortable because yeah. in the, the sort of more working class world, as you, not because you have some value judgment about the interests of your friends back home or something. You don't think that they're, they're wrong for being interested in what they're interested in. But as it happens, you just discover you're not in, as interested as, in that stuff. That difference that you observed of the, like, that th- there was a noticeable difference between life back home and life at university that students from middle class backgrounds weren't experiencing. That also is going to mean, you know, if you don't, as much as you wouldn't necessarily feel totally at home, uh, back home in the way that you might have used to, that doesn't mean you suddenly feel really settled and everything feels really familiar in the more middle class world. Mm. Yeah. So, so you know, go to you know university for the first time as an undergraduate, you're eighteen, nineteen in Scotland, you're sometimes seventeen. Mm. Everyone, as they grow older, their interests change, and much of that change is influenced fairly heavily by the environment um, in which they're in. Um, so, uh, so, you know, when you, when you are growing and, and you know, having life experiences um, at, at university, the interests that you, you know, how your interests morph and change, you're going to be influenced by that. Um, and meanwhile, uh, are you know people back home um, their interests are going to be morphing and changing in a different way also influenced by their environment I, I guess that's it's the divergence in and of itself that leads to this feeling of being split between two different worlds um, I remember the minorities and philosophy uh, workshop that came up with that analogy of being split between two different worlds and, and I heard that and at the time, it just sort of clicked in my brain because I, I never really thought about it before. But it's true, it's yeah. true. Um, and it's and it, you know, one world isn't there are these two worlds, and neither do I feel as I fit into completely. You know, I mean, I can enjoy being, but I'm always going to have the background of. You know, and I'm always going to have the experiences that I've known. Yeah, that was something that it almost seemed like people from working class backgrounds who then 
had moved into more of a middle-class environment and especially people who had started succeed profession like it seemed like there was this issue of how to then regard their upbringing working class environment or culture that in some sense felt native to them but then was at odds with the environment they're in now and it seemed like some people felt ashamed of that background some people felt proud and wanted to emphasize it um while like while being in this more middle class environment something that anyone in that position had to grapple with even though their conclusions about it yeah and i think i'm quite fortunate in that it's never actually affected my mental health been something that I've just sort of, you know, just taken in my um, I know it definitely will affect people's mental health. I'm probably in the minority in that it hasn't. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if there's ever been any, any research, but yeah, I think it's worth, it's worth highlighting that this feeling of disconnect is people's mental health in, in one way. I mean, perhaps it has affected mine, I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it's about research. One thing that uh, actually, someone from Student Mind sent me a document that details some of this stuff. And I mean, it doesn't go into a lot of detail in terms of yeah, young people with low socioeconomic status are two to three times more likely to have mental health difficulties. Um, who are applicants to higher education are consistently more likely to disclose mental ill health at their application. And when they're 20, they're twice as likely as 18 to declare it. Uh, now, I guess from that, we don't know for certain if it's just that people's mental health gets worse, you know, or like that they're more likely to have mm. those difficulties at 20 than 18. But it seems reasonable alienation that you've been talking about. It seems like it can be pretty pervasive. I can, yeah, I can imagine it really could be. Yeah. Um, one one factor in, in my not really knowing is I uh, didn't have a lot, of, a lot of friends at university that were from uh low-income backgrounds are the first in the family to go to university i did mm. know some um you know we never really talked about it um you know it wasn't the, the the mental health impacts of being the first in your family to go to university um wasn't something that we ever really talked about and it's not something that we've ever really talked in fact we never really talked about who was the first in the family to go to university. The more I think about it, the more people I know that actually know they were, they were the first in the family to go to university. And we didn't really talk about that much either. Mm. You know, um, I guess, I guess these sorts of things don't really come up. Um, maybe they should. Yeah. Yeah. It's because issues around social class and university aren't well understood then it doesn't seem like it's a live issue even among those who are from working class backgrounds to talk about even amongst themselves because no, no one is saying this is the kind of thing that might make a difference for you even though that is the experience of a lot of people from those backgrounds yeah yeah i mean these probably these conversations are probably had in some societies you know, yeah. there'll be there'll be some university societies that will have these conversations um i would imagine i just never found myself in those spaces yeah, I mean, I can imagine that, like, in terms of mental health, I mean, low self-esteem is a big uh, driver of low mental health. And I can only imagine, if it, like, consistently you're going to be there for three or four years and you're told these are the most important years of your life and you've got to make the best of them and it's really important. And, you know, not just 
so not i mean there's ac academically you've got to work hard this is your chance to but also socially like you're this is where you're going to meet all of your lifelong friends and all these things if you're in that environment being told all these positive things that are meant to be happening to you but at the same time you don't feel like they are happening to you or, or it is happening but you don't feel fully connected with it or you can't get quite as invested as perhaps someone from a background where all of that stuff is just more familiar that just seems like for a lot of people that would give them a sense of low self-esteem and a sense that you know they um there are things that some people in life deserve you know like a a good academic education and to feel a sense of community and belonging yeah yeah i i think all of these things are definitely things that people that some people are going to be thinking about yeah you know, i mean in, imposter syndrome is incredibly pervasive yeah and, uh you know um everyone everyone always had it you know i was i was i i was just um thinking recently about how i how um i don't feel like i'm as good i'm as good at um my work as other people are at their own work um you know i was talking to a friend about this now it's just and it's not to write off how um people are feeling um because the emotions and these feelings and this sense of not belonging um but it's but it's important um remember that you know you're not alone in how you're feeling if like an undergraduate is a thing and they have tutors their tutors are likely going to be feeling the imposter syndrome yeah i think that's a good point i mean definitely I've been an undergraduate and I'm now a PhD student. So, I mean, I've not been able to do any tutoring. Um, hopefully I will. I'm in my first year, so hopefully I will in my second or third year. But the idea that now I'm apparently competent enough to be the person who leads seminars of undergrads when I've been an undergrad, like, um, and yeah, I don't, I don't feel qualified for that. And, but in a way it's kind of reassuring that these people who, when I was an undergrad, I looked on as like, God, they just know everything and they're so intelligent and they've read so much and they're so competent. And then you just like, um, yeah, you realize, I remember going in, I remember going to an office hour and seeing, I think the the office kind of connected to like a common room for PhD students. And so I'm going to talk mm -hmm. to this PhD student who is running one of my modules. And I just see that, like, these PhD students, about three of them, and they have this massive board game set up. And it's like some sort of Star Wars themed board game that takes hours and a lot of concentration and patience. And I, that was one of those startling reminders that PhD students actually are not only um, not quite as competent as they might seem, but also just spend an awful lot of time avoiding doing work. <coughs> oh, Oh, I can I can reassure people. <laughs> students, I hope my supervisor isn't listening. Um, yeah. Hey, students, spend, don't worry, supervisor. I stood there and I said, um, I only know that because an episode of House I watched once, and one of the one of the the students teacher has a life outside of the classroom, and I was like, I do. It's true. I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I also think I was saying this before too um, that that we often don't. We're talking about uh, something, and I made reference to um, one of the one of the first like papers that was written on this topic, and like I quoted the name and the date and the person that was written by, um, just from memory because uh, I, I just I didn't understand. I just it's something it just stuck in my brain for some bizarre reason. Um, but you know now i didn't help myself now I, i've done it again i've gone and promoted the image that that phd students just can just quote 
papers and dates <laughs> and names just from memory. And I'm like, no, no, no. I actually know nothing. I just know that like one really. Uh, um, Nish Kumar, and hmm. he he studied English lit at um, Durham, I think it was. And someone said to him uh, on the podcast, I think someone said, "Oh, have you have you?" Um, it was something like, "Have you read that book or have you seen that film?" And he said, um, "Yeah, I'm familiar. with it. I haven't read it." But like, I'm not saying I haven't read it. I'm saying like that I'm giving this vague sense that even though I haven't read it, I still know exactly what you're talking about. It's a key takeaway from university that you get to, you find more sophisticated ways of saying you don't know something that also make it sound like you know exactly. I think um, <laughs> the, uh, the the number of, um, you know, make it seem like that they've, that they've read a lot of books. And in reality, you know, the, the number of the number of books that uh, that the lecture has read from cover to cover, like academic books they're talking about, um, is probably. I, I had a um, a lecturer who was supervising some projects I was working on for my masters, and he lent me this book, and he said, "Yeah, it's a really good book. That it's actually the only philosophy book I've ever read cover to cover," and and it also wasn't a particularly long book, and I just looked at it. <laughs> oh. After the recording, I want you to tell me who that was. Okay. Uh, but I think this is interesting because I think this is this is kind of like intrinsic knowledge. Yeah. You know, all of this stuff is is intrinsic knowledge. It's not. It's not. It's certainly. It's not knowledge that you know. Things they're given the task of running seminars, but they aren't experts. Or you know, our lecturers. You know, like you were saying, the more you develop ways to make it seem like you know a lot more about things than you actually do. Um, I think that all of this is just more intrinsic knowledge yeah you know that 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 someone from someone that is the first in the family to go to university just might not be aware of if you've read or you watched the series normal people um originally it was a book i have not now oh uh, but like class issues of class at university come up a lot in both the book and the series and mm. there's a point in the book where uh, so there's there's one character called Connell who goes to it's what Oxbridge is in England. Um, oh, I just laughed. But sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a bit where in the book Connell's in his, some of his first English lit seminars, and I think he's it's maybe his first term or something, and he's just getting into grips with it, and he's feeling like a massive imposter. And then he he's he says he feels like an imposter partly because all the other students are talking in these very high-minded abstract ways about the text and they seem to have all this they seem to be able to talk about it at a level of abstraction that is just totally beyond him and then he later realizes no they just haven't read the book and so the reason they're talking it in high-minded abstractions is because they can't give any detail about what's happened um but like one thing that was interesting about that from a kind of social class perspective was i was talking to a friend of mine who a certain kind of shame or a certain kind of guilt because she said you know like she studied English and she said you know I've definitely done that I've kind of um talked I mean who knows how convincing it is to actual actual lecturers who've read um the actual books or whatever but you know that, that she had done that kind of thing and realized that some of the ability to do that came from this sense of like an internal sense of confidence that well, I can go into this room and even though I haven't read this book, rather than keep silent about it, I'm going to talk in a way that, in addition to the intrinsic knowledge of like how to sound convincing about something, there's also the confidence of 
how you feel when you walk into a seminar room and what kind of options you feel like you have. Do you think that if you haven't read it, you just have to keep silent or do you think you can say things? Uh... And all of this is intrinsic knowledge. You know, none of this is, none of the, none of these things are things that, 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 you know, it's not, no. you know, I mean, no, I no. think it probably should be in a university, I think a university far more accessible, um, but none of, all of, all of, all of these, you know, these ideas, it is possible to walk into a university seminar having not done any of the reading and still be able to contribute. Um, should you do it? No. But it is possible, but it's intrinsic knowledge, you know, it's something, yeah. it's something you're told by people that have been through the process, you know, having gone through the process, I now know that, that, you know, because there's lots of ways to contribute to a seminar. Yeah, you know, that's true. Just contributing to a seminar can happen, you know, not necessarily in trying to talk about the text, but, but just by listening closely and asking questions. Yeah. You know, if you if you haven't read the if you haven't read for the seminar, um, you can still contribute by asking questions about, you know, what's being you have to work out for yourself if you're the first in your family to go to university. You know, unless someone happens to tell you. Yeah, definitely. What effect do you think these kind of issues have when it comes to postgraduate study, and especially? Um... Yeah, so postgraduate study is is interesting because money definitely is an issue when it comes to postgraduate study. Um, for uh, there's almost no money. Um, you know, the the English and Scottish system is different. Um, because uh, education has devolved. Um, I don't know anything about the, about the Scottish system. I know that for England, uh, last night, but if you are a resident of England, you're entitled to a postgraduate loan of £11,222 if your course starts on or after 2020. Um, I received £10,609, the standard student loan, I believe, anyway. Obviously, check everything yourself. Um, but if you just think about that for a moment, if you just think about the the money for a moment. Um, the philosophy emlet at St Andrews, if you are a home student, is um, £9,900, and that's a year-long master's programme. Um, so if you do the math, you know, 11222 minus 9900 is 1222 um, is some standard self-catered accommodation that I saw on their website was 5,406 excluding utilities and 6,738 including um, those are postgraduate accommodation um, now there are some bursaries for low income people you know I, um, I, but if you want money to live off because St Andrews is expensive mm. um, you know if you want to go to the pub and have a social life um, uh, then the amount of money that you get from the and those sorts of issues aren't limited to St Andrews either. I, I double check the 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 one year philosophy um, MA at York is eight thousand four hundred forty full time. Um, Leeds advertises nine hundred and nine. So it's it's not St Andrews expensive. It's you know these prices are fairly standard for one year taught masters, should I say? And um, all mm. of those were the taught masters. So I'm fortunate in that my parents are able to take out a loan to help me like a, a bank loan, a real one. So they're able to um, fill in that shortfall of about it. PhD, it gets a little better, feasible, and the English loan makes it a little more feasible. Um, but 
there's still a shortfall. Like I said at the at the top, my granddad is helping me eat. Yeah. Um. And without without him, I literally wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing right. Well, I wouldn't be able to be doing my PhD. You know, which means I wouldn't have done. And so you know, so the financial barriers exist there for people from a low income background. And it's not like is an extra thing that you can do like it was once of a postgraduate. You know, in in some cases. You know, you you need to go on to do more postgraduate study, um, in order to be more competitive in the job market. You know, um, and some jobs you literally need to do postgraduate study. You know, I mean, and the only way to do that is to follow the path that I'm doing. All of that, you know, there there is a barrier to entry, which is yeah. Um, you know, the barrier to entry is is now. Obviously, you could respond and say, "Well, there are some scholarships available." And it's true. Exactly what they're based on can vary. Often, they're based on academic merit, um, but they're so few. So you have to have extraordinarily high academic merit. Um, you know, I'm I'm okay, but but it's it is um, slightly frustrating that you know you can meet all of the entry requirements for a course, which obviously I did. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's not it's not enough to be good enough to get onto the course. You then have to be. It's that sort of financial barrier to entry that is almost certainly keeping people out, and it's obviously compounded. But there's a gap between the number of people from a low income background that go to university. You know, so you have low representation of of like say people that want free school meals. At, at university, you have low representation of those students, um, and then once again, you have even less representation of those students at postgraduate level, because um, you know you start off with a low number, and then the affordability of postgraduate level study is just substantially um, lower. You know, it's much less affordable, and um, it really it requires alternative sources of income other than the loan that you can get from. It requires, you know, you you need to do a master's first, um, and that's the bit that's that is. Some... I mean, yeah, I mean, it's so true. Like, I have a friend who's um, from a working class, low income background, and what's been so remarkable is just have the same aspirations that like, we both uh, wanted to do uh, masters in philosophy. We both wanted to do PhDs in philosophy. I mean, I, I don't know if I still want to become an academic, but like that might be something I would pursue. Um, at least if I complete my PhD, I'm certainly in a position to try. I've been able to pursue a PhD and he hasn't. And the only real difference there is money. I mean, he was trying, this is the other striking thing is I mean, he, he was trying to do his master's part time, uh, which is a, like a way I know some students from more low income backgrounds can try and do this. But even with that, they were finding that they didn't. They either didn't have enough time because they were working so much, or if they wanted more time, they had to work less, and they wouldn't have enough money. And that was just like the, the toss-up that they were faced with, and they had to. And that was they only needed to survive for the year for that for the at least for the masters because it was only a one. That's just one example. And if you just multiply that, and you imagine how many people never get to do the masters, so they then never get to do the PhD, so they're not even in the running to it, and. And then as well with the funding situation, funding is so competitive um, and I mean, especially PhD. We have a thing at Sheffield where I'm doing my PhD 
across Sheffield, York and Leeds called the White Rose, which you might have. And that provides like really good funding. It pays your fees. It pays you um, mm. 15 grand a year in stipend. Um, mm. But it's so competitive. And I, I remember, so I got turned down for it twice. And I remember talking to um, someone. And I was feeling kind of frustrated because, you know, is, is this not enough? And I was talking to someone else and they said, yeah, to be honest, like there was someone we know who went on to university challenge and had like the most glittering academic seat. So you've got like this requirement of extreme academic, like exceptional academic merit, which most people um, potentially regardless of background aren't going to be able to meet. Hmm. But also because the loans are based totally on academic merit, I mean, as you say, there are some bursaries, but in my experience, when I've looked, bursaries tend to be much less than the scholarships for academic merit. And the other weird thing is then, so I'm someone who happily, you know, because of um, my family's financial situation, I was more than able to do a PhD without getting a scholarship. And then that was a really weird position to then, I found myself wondering if I should even apply for it. Because I think, well, I don't, don't, I'm not going to be unable to do this PhD without the scholarship. So if I get it, I would be taking it away from someone else who might need it more than me. But because no one's asking that question, I might also not be taking it, like it might just go to someone who's even better off than me. So it's not, it became this, it's the university's responsibility to say, well, actually, we want people from low income backgrounds to come here. So we're going to supply the means for them to do that. And yet they seem to have kind of chosen not to. There's a strange imposter syndrome as well around this that, that I, so because I didn't get any sort of funding, I kind of, I, I sometimes feel like well am I you know I feel like I've sort of like bought my way into it yeah which makes, and I mean you know to be clear this is completely irrational um you know I'm very, I'm definitely good enough it's just a question it just it just fit because because a funding body give me like the official stamp and go yes your research is worth giving money to it it raises and obviously this is a, this is slightly problematic and, and this isn't going to be something that's only held by people from, you know, a low-income background. It's going to be held by everyone um, that isn't, yeah, any, anyone that isn't funded could could feel this way. Um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, you think, well, you just sort of feel like I've, I've bought my way into it, even though um, all of these very clever after being a, a, a student to supervise. Um, it's still, um, it's, a, it's a very strange thing because on the one hand, I am extremely fortunate in that, uh, in that I, you know, have access to the English loan and um, I have access to a small amount of family money that can help me survive for the three years. Um, let's not talk about the fourth year, we haven't worked that one out yet. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, so I'm very fortunate in that position. So then it just feels odd yet again to, you know, complain yeah. or to, to say, you know, oh, I, you know, I don't feel like I really belong here, you know, or to complain about, you know, the luxury of feeling like, like I've bought my way onto the PhD, you know, what <laughs> a luxury that is to feel that way. And it's just, it's just a lot of very, confusing emotions involved and and it feels you know 
just just talking about it feels a bit long. Yeah. You know, it feels slightly slightly awkward. Thinking it in your mind and speaking it aloud is obviously extremely different. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you said, like when you use the expression brought your way in I mean that was something I had I hadn't phrased it like that but it does really get at what that experience is like because I have the same thing and I mean I'm in this I'm in this uh, an incredibly fortunate position like I thought, I, so basically I've um I recently bought my first flat um mm-hmm. and I've you know very aware incredibly lucky to do that I was able to buy it without a mortgage because I just had mm-hmm. a lot of this family money and it seemed like mm-hmm. a sensible thing to do um, and I had money left over to do a PhD and like that's I don't know anyone really in that position um, mm. especially at my age but then there is the, still the nagging post syndrome of like yeah but I'm only here because I can afford to be here I'm not here because as you say like some funding body has said well we have to have them and we're going to put our, all of our money behind them it's like it's a weird mm. feeling and it's yeah it, it feels as you say it feels weird to kind of complain about it because it's it's a kind of advantage to know that you don't depend on that kind of funding, but it but we'll just very openly say, yeah, those funding bodies are ridiculous, and they it's quite arbitrary what they choose to fund and what they don't, and it's not a reflection of the actual quality of the research. Uh, but it's still possible to feel the impossible. Yeah, yeah, um, it does feel very awkward to talk about. And it, it's, it, all, it all just links back to the sorts of things I was saying earlier about not wanting to be a book. There's other PhDs on the programme, it, it's an Andrew, that have, you know, just enough family money to eat, but not enough. Yeah. You know, the other thing as well that, that I try to remind myself about is that, okay, so my, so, you know, my, both of my parents are in fairly, my mum works for the NHS and my, my dad works for a large supermarket chain. And neither of them are going anywhere anytime so in that sense i am incredibly fortunate just at that level you know and and my parents um have a mortgage on this house that they bought in like the 90s before the house market you know before the the market went you know either through the floor through the roof depending on which analogy (laughs) um you know uh so like you know there's lots of things that that i'm very you know that are very fortunate I guess when I think back, you know, to the stories that my parents have told me about when I was younger, things that I don't really remember, um, you know, but things like how, you know, something that I mentioned at the top, she told me this one story that stuck with me. She was really, really upset because um, she couldn't afford to like buy me new when I was yeah. little. And now in a very fortunate position where we're able to do these sorts of things but like all of this background you know it is where I came from you know and it's still and it's given me that I maybe wouldn't have had and since it was my life as I was growing up and developing although maybe I wasn't consciously aware of it I'm sure it's impacted you know something in my development um you know just just the environment that I grew up in um, you know, and growing up in the northeast where I did, um, you know, again, I'm sure it's impacted uh, my. Uh, it's impacted every. You know, it's impacted. One thing I, I have kind of encountered with people who, um, who have come from very like low income backgrounds is it seems like the concerns around money 
don't go away even when the actual financial concerns have been kind of settled for the time being where you know someone could be in a very stable job they could have earned a lot of money um they could have a very like financially secure future in front of them but if they have one thing that came up in that book limbo that i mentioned earlier is when you have a couple when you have like someone from a working class background and someone from middle class background together there are these arguments because the person from the middle class background, I say, you know, why, why are you bothered about like that tenor that you have to spend or that like um, that bill that came through, you know, we can afford it. What's the problem? But for them, it, it has, for the other person, it has this kind of sense of significance because it traces back to um, this kind of formative period in their life when that would have been the big. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the, um, I think, I think that, I think that definitely holds true. Um, you know, one, one of the reasons that, that um, my granddad was able to give me the money is because, um, you know, they didn't have much money when they were growing up. Um, you know, he was he was born during the war, um, mm. and uh, in like a in a, a rural, a fairly rural village uh, near Downton. Um, and uh, so when they got slightly better jobs, my my nan and granddad, um, they saved a lot. You know, they had this awareness of money. Um, and we're just very aware of, you know, the, the possibility of, and they've never bought expensive things. They've never, you know, bought like designer clothing or whatever. It's not, it's it's of no interest to them. Mm. Um, because, you know, they, they look at a, you know, they, uh, they look at like a, I don't know, a pair of, of like a designer top or whatever. And I think a lot of these, a lot of these factors combine, and it's not, and I don't think it's, it's not something we'd really be all that aware of, if, you know, if um, if it's not an environment that you grew up in. Yeah, I can imagine the sort of, I can imagine that creating anxiety around money that uh, would might be kind of quite persistent. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, so I know it can manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, for me, admittedly, it's not too bad. Yeah. Um, but that's only because at the very start of like, when I started off on my PhD, um, I, I, um, budgeted such that, um, such that, I knew all of like the entire three years were fully covered. So I got I, you know, spreadsheet, whole thing, worked it all out. And I just um and occasionally I go back and check that I was right, um, just to make sure. because uh, uh, it's not like I have any of the money to fall back on, you know, that's it. Mm. Um that's all I have. Um so like and part of that is just that you know i um i don't have the mental space to really think about it i need yeah. to i need to i need to work it out once um i mean some some of this will be my fpld as well but i need to work it out once and then just trust myself that i got it right and just like try and pray out my- so i guess as i start that out there is more of an awareness than than uh i initially made out maybe i'm just used to it so, yeah yeah, I think that's the other thing as well is um, 
I've I've had to do something similar in terms of you know doing the budgeting, trying to fit. Especially, I think I'm conscious of the fact that like once you sign up to a PhD, you're kind of committed, and you, while you might be able to do some work on the side, there's there's a, a degree to which you you don't want to have to like be forced into do, having to do. You don't want to have to do any more. I think there's the anxiety of like one like running out of money before the PhD is over and then it's this thing of like well you have you want to complete the PhD but how, how are you going to do it without money but then there's also you know I don't want to complete my PhD and have absolutely no money just because there's some there's some anxiety there of like um that that puts a lot of pressure on getting a job immediately and, you know I do know if I was in that position my parents could give me more money um but there's obviously some of the like one not wanting to Ask. yeah just a sense of like well i want to manage my money effectively it, it's it's mentally taxing to an extent to have to think about it and to monitor it in that way yeah um and the philosophy job market is yeah uh, yeah um i am very aware every philosophy phd student that you know they are doing their work and they are going to be extraordinarily challenging to get a job. I mean, it's true that, that um, no longer is just getting a PhD enough, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, you have to get PhDs, you have to, you have to get your PhD and you're also, you're also expected to publish and, um, you know, multiple things and or at least one thing, you know, and, and, uh, and, and do other activities, you know, in order to try to, I'm doing all this and, you know, I'm, I have, accrued you know government debt and um, a large amount of it uh people can do the math um and uh you know some of my my you know as much as you can afford um and like my parents took out a loan to do my masters and it's perfectly possible that i won't get a job yeah um and you know and that isn't that isn't a thing that's just you know that isn't something that's just me. Um, there's people that there's there are some PhD students at St Andrews that 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 work during their um during their PhD. You know, not not just tutoring. That's obviously a lot of uh, it's a lot of work for them. Um, having to try to juggle both of those things, all of those things. Um, and it, it's just a lot of pressure to put on yourself. Um. Mm. And and I think it's important to acknowledge that even though you know we're both in incredibly fortunate positions, it doesn't make problems or concerns go away. Usually, they just transfer. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I I'm a I'm a I'm a very anxious boy, um, and uh, you know, okay, so. So fine, I'm not being anxious about money, but I mean, I'm still going to be anxious about something, you know, um, I'm still going to find something to be anxious about. Uh, so I think it's important for people that that are in fortunate positions to, you know, cut themselves some slack um, and not feel the guilt. Um, you can still struggle with your mental health. Um, and it's in, and it's, I guess it's important for everyone to just, you know. Yeah.
Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a really important point. Is there can be, in the same way, uh, when we started talking about imposter syndrome, and there's that thing of well, you know, I'm not qualified to talk about this subject to be a spokesperson because I haven't had it as bad as I could have had it. I think there's there's almost a sense of like I'm not qualified to feel depressed or anxious. Like I've not had the work. Like there's because there's always someone who will have it worse than you, and you can always imagine that. Well, of course, they would feel like they're going to be justified in feeling that way. Sometimes I think that can be its own symptom of if it, especially things like depression, maybe anxiety as well. Of like, it's like it's not enough that I'm depressed, but the fact that I'm depressed shows that I'm a bad person because a good person would be really grateful and appreciative of all the good things and how fortunate they are. So, like, my depression tells me that I'm just massively self indulgent or don't realize how good I have it. And I think that's like, mm that's quite a common thing to feel and I think because I felt that in the past and I think it was helpful for me to notice that that was a simple yeah I I think it's very easy to fall into a pattern fall into like uh but you know human emotion is very complicated and um, mm. I don't yeah I, I don't think that's the <laughs> um uh it is extremely complicated and and you and um you know and nothing simple uh, when it comes to human emotion, so you it is important to just remember that, and I don't know, just be kind to yourself, you know. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's that's the key. Um, you know, I'm just kind of like learning. But I'm conscious of the fact that I haven't asked you about. My, you mentioned it before, minorities um, and philosophy, and that's how you and I met. Is you organising one of these events to do with um, the experience of working class students at university? Do you want to say a little bit like? What is MAP and what, is it MAP or MAPS? So my knowledge and philosophy, I, um, I don't, uh, but the international network of students that aims at addressing um, issues of inclusivity and uh, minority participation in philosophy, um, or at least that's what their website says. Yeah. Um, and that's true. Uh, you know, and they have chapters in various universities around the world. Um, uh, St Andrews has one. Um, you know, they've been really good at, I'm going to shout out the postgraduate research representative, Laura, who's excellent and always willing to like work for like meaningful change um, and always ready to get involved with, with things. Um, something that has been raising awareness for the um, barriers for people with dyslexia. And so I'm dyslexic. Uh, well, I have an SPLD uh, that's most commonly referred to as dyslexic. There's dyslexia, but uh, I have like the ADHD traits as well, and, and other and other things and things, um, and and MAP and other uh, PhDs in, in the department have been super supportive about like pushing meaningful changes, things around like um, like fonts and formatting. You know, the okay, British Dyslexia yeah. the British Dyslexia Association has a fantastic style guide um, on uh, on fonts and formatting. Um, I didn't realise I was affected by it, but. Um, uh, serif fonts are harder to read um, than sans serif fonts for a lot of dyslexics. Um, so uh, just to put that in perspective, so Times New Roman is harder to read than say Arial. Um, oh, okay. So formatting work in Arial size 12 makes um, reading anything easier and the department have been fantastic at implementing changes um, relating to that. Um, so that's that's excellent, um, you know. I've I've 
uh, I'm really pleased that they've been very receptive. Um, and and I'm hoping that there's that there's more things that we're able to do as, as things pop up, you know, because uh, not every dyslexic has the same same issues. So not every single um, dyslexic is going to be uh, is going to um, uh, uh, find certain fonts harder to read, like find sans, find serif fonts harder to read. Um, it's a fairly common thing, and I I just didn't realise until uh, I started doing a lot of marking and switching between serif and sans serif. So you know, so there's going to be more things that come up, um, and and map have been super supportive in in pushing for um, those the um, changes uh, in all you know in in all areas of, of minorities in philosophy. You know, a lot of the um, uh, uh, feminist philosophy and other underrepresented groups. Um, that's basically their their aims and how I understand it anyway. Yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah, I didn't even know the stuff about um, fonts. High contrast backgrounds um, are harder for uh, dyslexics to read. So, like black text on a white background is harder to read um, than say uh, like a pastel blue background with dark blue text. And okay. that just makes it much easier to read um, and along with the other things as well. But, you know, the British Dyslexia Association has all of the information on their website and it's written, obviously, in a very dyslexic friendly way. Oh, um, that's good. So, yeah. so they, they have a style guide and that's super useful. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I would encourage people to check that out if they want to be more aware of, you know, making making their, uh, their work slightly more accessible. OK, yeah, now I can link to that in the description. Um, uh, so uh, I'll just give out the the um, the map contact email, which is on the website, which is um, map map UK. That's m a p u k dot sas s a s t at sinandrews.ac.uk. Um, uh, and there they can they'll be able to email. They also have um, the St Andrews map chapter has a website. Presumably, as well, if there's a map um, in their university, they can look for that as well. Definitely yes, and they and they should, and I'm sure Map would say if there is not a chapter in their university, if their philosophy is philosophy, if there is not one, they they would be encouraged to create one. Yeah. Um. And uh. And yeah. And, and people can email me at um rpb for standrews.ac.uk. I say Roger Papa Bravo Bravo for um where you know email be about things. You have anything to talk about philosophy of mind or consciousness? Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, but that's that's where people can contact me if they have any questions. Okay, great. Yeah. And if if there's anyone listening to this who would like to talk more about their own experience of um coming from a, a working class background and being at university, um I know the student minds blog encourages people to blog, especially if, if they're from minority background. Um, and especially any working class officers who'd be interested in coming on the podcast to talk more about this, uh, I'd be interested in hearing from, well, I'm sure everyone at Student Minds would be interested in hearing about that. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that episode. As mentioned, if you're looking for mental health support, there's a variety of resources available that I've linked to in the description. And if you enjoy the podcast, do let others know about it. We're trying to spread the word. And thank you for listening.